Welcome to this podcast from the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard Law School. Today, Joe Goffman, our Executive Director, will be talking with Francesca Domenici, Professor of Biostatistics at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and Co-Director of the Harvard Data Science Initiative. Professor Domenici will be discussing her recent research on the health effects of the Trump administration's environmental deregulation. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you very much for coming to the uh, Environmental and Energy Law Program here at Harvard Law School. Um, we're here today to talk to Dr. Francesca Domenici of the T.H. Chan School of Public Health here at Harvard University. Uh, and uh, I hate to admit it, it's really exciting to have you here because the, the work that you've done is so critically important generally and it goes right to the heart of the public policy discussion, or I should really say controversies, that um, we're having around changes in rules, practices, and methodologies um, that Scott Pruitt is attempting to impose on the Environmental Protection Agency. Recently, you've done just magnificent work in the area of public health. Uh, and there are three things that would be great to talk to you about today. First, you took a look at the body of rules that Scott Pruitt is trying to slow down, weaken, or reverse. Rules that had been uh, put in place by the Obama administration, all aimed at reducing air and water pollution or curbing waste. And we're as we as lawyers have been tracking the changes that are being made from the perspective of administrative law. What you try to do, and I think what you did very, very successfully, was take a look at what the actual public health stakes were. Um, so, could you give us a, a little bit of a, a, a thumbnail summary of of what you found in terms of the public health stakes of those rule rollbacks? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you, uh, thank you for for having me here. Um, indeed, um, I think that in the last um, few months or, or year, there has been pretty much an attack on science from uh, the, the Environmental Protection Agency and what is happening in terms of um, rolling back or threatening to rolling back a lot of these environmental rules is extremely concerning for the public health. This was an opportunity that came to me through my colleague David Cutler as uh, to write together a short piece for the Journal American Medical Association. It's called Forum. It's more like an opinion piece. We did an attempt with this our opinion piece to do a full investigation of the public health consequences of rolling back all of these um, these these rules, but we wanted to, I would say, provide a higher level view of the public health impact. Um, and so, what we did, we had we had a very short time to do this and we have a very limited amount of space to do this. And what we wanted to do is basically we went to, uh, we, we tried to find all of the environmental rules that have either been already rolled back or they're going to be rolled back. And we tried to um, cluster them in the most important one, where you know the one that will target the 
you know, um, co- contaminant in the in the air. So it levels of air pollution, levels from um, uh, emission from power plants, uh, emission from car and trucks, pesticide and water. And then what we did is we literally went through uh, EPA cost-benefit analysis um, and review uh, the EPA cost-benefit analysis associated with uh, the implementation of this rule and the consequences of the damage of what you will see by you know, uh, going back to not implementing their rule. And so we created this table and we sum, uh, we literally did a sum of the public health damages. And we, you know, when you're starting to um, take all of these action of um, going backward um, and you start looking at cumulatively, the public health impact becomes very sub, 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 substantial. And the, the, my feeling was that the public was, was losing the importance because there was all over the news every single day. They're talking one rule at a time in, um, you know, in a very isolated fashion. Um, so bottom line is, um, we found that by, um, if they are going to do what they're saying to do in rolling back, you know, at, at least some of, of the, the rule, we were going to see 80,000 extra deaths in the next decade and many more hospitalization and um, hospitalization among kids and hospitalization among adults, uh, respiratory problems. The other thing that I wanted to emphasize is, again, we didn't come up with this number doing any type of very complicated calculation. We just came up with the number by adding the public health damages that are really documented by the EPA. And the other piece that I would like to add that we do feel pretty strongly that that is an underestimate of the public health impact because most of these public health um, damages do not account of the potential what we call co-benefits. So the classical example is that if you're trying to target a source of pollution, uh, for example, a power plant, you're not only going to have a public health gain as a result of lowering the level of a particular contaminant, but if you're shutting down a coal-fired power plant, you're going to reduce emission of a multitude of many, 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 many pollutants, and therefore the public health impact are going to be even larger. So, um, So it was really tried to speak to the public and say, you know, it's important that the, the people understand the the, uh, the cumulative in a certain way, the concern, and we want to raise a concern about movement that the EPA is taking on really going back to many, many of the progress that we are making to assure that, that people can breathe clean air and drink clean water. Well, you know, I think... Uh in some ways, your work was uh, a kind of, you know, wish fulfillment, because what we've been tracking and what the media pays attention to is the step by step of changing the rules themselves. So, uh, if you're just looking inside the box from a legal point of view, you can forget 
exactly what it is that you brought to light, which is the actual stakes are not how the administrative process or the process of judicial review is going or just those questions. The question is, how is the public health being affected? Uh, And I think what's so important about your effort here is that as many, but as many people know, but not everybody knows, when the EPA puts out a rule, it does something called a regulatory impact analysis. Uh, and as you refer to it as the, the cost-benefit analysis, which is analysis, which is basically what it is. Right. Um, but on the benefit side, each of the rules that Pruitt is targeting, when each one was uh, proposed or finalized, the EPA had already done an analysis that uh, attempted to estimate the number of illnesses that the rule would avoid or the number of premature deaths that the rule would avoid. So Pruitt's own agency had generated this information, had put together uh, the basis of estimating what the cumulative impact on public health would be, and yet nevertheless went ahead and tried to draw these benefits back from the public by changing these rules. And I, I, I think your work um, really using the EPA's own, own information makes it clear what the, what, what the stakes are for uh, the public that these rules are intended to, to serve and, and protect. Um, I should say that, that, that we will post a link uh, on our website to the column you wrote with Dr. Cutler in May uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Association so people can read it, they can see the, 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 the group of rules that you clustered uh, and focused on. It gives a wonderful and very necessary perspective to what the EPA is doing. Let me ask you to talk to us about about another topic that in some ways is at least as important, um, uh, if not more so, because it gives us a chance to look forward. You know, one of the things that um, I think people who work in this policy area realize is that it's urgent to continue to make progress, whether it's in scientific understanding of public health issues, or it's in responding to that understanding and making change in policy, or whether it's looking at very closely related issues like climate change. It's, it's the urgency of progress that really is the most important urgency. One of the things that we've seen the EPA start to do, uh, at least since last October, is call into question whether or not particular increments of pollution reduction have any benefit for the public and whether or not those increments should be treated as having a positive value. One of the ways they've been going after it is by positing the proposition that emissions reductions below the current ambient air quality standards are of no value, either in public health terms or, or in monetary terms. And you were one of the lead experimenters and authors of a study that focused in on that very phenomenon, reductions in so-called clean air areas and how they affected public health. Um, so please let our listeners know what, what, what you found in that study and what conclusions um, you at least came to. Yeah. 
Yeah, first of all, you know, I think that in terms of thinking in a positive view and in the long term, above and beyond of what the current administration is doing, I always felt throughout my whole work that the most important way to impact policy for the benefit of the public is to rely on solid science and solid data and solid evidence. Um, because different administration and different people with different political opinions can always have, again, opinions. My work um, has always been, instead of talking about ideas on opinion, I always bring data to the table. And we are in an area, and you know, that's also, I'm a co-director of the Harvard Data Science Initiative, because right now we are uniquely positioned to measure every, pretty much everything. And so I mentioned the importance of data and science because of the study that we did, which I think it's, you know, had an enormous impact in policy, will have it in the long term, is because it relies on data, uh, a massive amount of data. And so what we did was, this is, it was a large team that I had the pleasure of leading at the School of Public Health uh, here at the Harvard THN School of Public Health, was basically to first gather data from satellite and use any additional information, including sophisticated approach in computer science and machine learning, that will allow to estimate the level of pollution for every one kilometer to one kilometer grid for the entire continental United States. By doing so, we were able to assess with a higher level of precision geographical areas around the U.S. where pollution levels were well below the national ambient air quality standard. And so now we have the data, we'll continue to produce the data. The data is publicly available. Everyone can see which area in the United States in the last 15 years, and we will continue to work further, have people living in areas that always live, you know, breathe pollution level below the national ambient air quality standard. And then we need to have, you know, very good information on health and diseases. And the United States, we have what we call, is, you know, the, the Medicare system. And most of, I think, 97% of people in the United States older than 65 are rolling Medicare claims. And so we, we gather Medicare claims for every single person in the United States in Medicare, under uh, percent, uh, which is, as I said, more than 96% of, of the population older than 65. We know where they live. We know their place of residence. And we knew we could track every time they go to the hospital for which reason they go to the hospital uh, and the day of that. And so we... We used so many more data. Um, this was an enormous data-intensive undertaking. But basically, we were able to identify over uh, 13 million Americans that were constantly living in areas that we call clean. They were always living in levels of pollution that were below the national ambient air quality standards. So we could, we, we were, by again, by relying on data, relying on data science tool, we could create enormous amount of, of people and creating a cohort where we could track their health, even if they were always breathing clean hair. 
And we found actually that small increment of ambient level of fine particulate matter, again, even in area that were always below the national ambient air quality standards set by the EPA, have up to a 13% increase in mortality risk. So uh, I feel that the power of the study, not only, you know, the, the study was published a year ago, I think had an enormous amount of press coverage and but regardless of what, how that's been received and how it's going to impact the new standard that will be re re reviewed pretty soon, by the way, I think we go back to the idea that they're relying on solid data and solid science, I think, are the major, um, I would say, um, building block that could inform regulatory policy for, the, for you know, for the best of the public interest without being subject to, you know, different views or opinions. Well, I think what you just laid out is like a, a feast for people in, who are interested in policy. It, it, it seems as if we could do a whole podcast just on the monumentality of the methodology you used and, and the and the and the way you collected and assembled data and the almost limitless richness of, of that approach. However, before we get to that, uh, it's get to that, let me try to translate from the perspective of people who watch the regulatory process mm -hmm. as it currently exists, um, what some potential takeaways would be. First, even though the current standard for uh, pollution, in this case, uh, fine particles, was arrived at by the EPA as part of an assessment as to what is a, a so-called safe level of yep. uh, particulate concentration to, to inhale. What you saw, um, and what your colleagues saw, is that re further reductions in pollution below that ostensibly safe level um, really would bring benefits because the pollution that is in the air in areas that meet the standard is nevertheless causing health effects okay. um, to, if you will, real people um, having real experiences both in terms of suffering ill health and imposing costs on, on the medical system. So that to make the argument that the EPA is currently making that changes or reductions in pollution, even at that level, have no material effect and therefore no value. That's a proposition that seems to be uh, thoroughly refuted by what, what you observed and concluded in your study. Yeah, by data. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that's, that's the argument. I mean, the argument is we can measure ambient level of pollution um, now on a very, very um, rigorous manner. And so data refute to, um, you know, clearly pointed out that um, even if you're living in an area where the level of pollution is below this 12 microgram per, per cubic meter, which is the National Ambiental Quality Standard for PM 2.5, uh, people experience adverse health effect. And, and, and the only uh, a moderate health effect. There is an increase in uh, there is a statistical significant increase in the risk of that. So data inform policy, and uh, this is a massive. 
amount of data that it's not cannot be subject to while well, you have studied this population, but you haven't studied this population. Uh, we study everybody. <laughs> so we have to have faith that data will defeat ideology uh, and regulatory convenience. Yes. Um, which goes to the heart of uh, something you said at the beginning, which is not only are we seeing an attack on specific rules and, and regulations and standards, but we're seeing an, an, an attack on science. And now that, now that you, you've explained the work you've been doing, I at least think I can see what, the, the deeper meaning in what, what you said, yeah. um, which is that by uh, going after these rules, which themselves were based on analysis and data, the, the Pruitt is implicitly rejecting the underlying intellectual infrastructure and the data and analysis that went into those rules. And what you've done is not only call him out in the JAMA column, but you know, you've basically countered that with this really monumental study. As you know, predecessor studies, which relied on data involving confidential information, now seem to be uh, targeted by a proposal that Pruitt has made to exclude those studies because the patient data is confidential. You used Medicare, where the patient data isn't protected by confidentiality. So it would seem that your study would not be affected by this uh, censoring proposal that Pruitt is, has, um, has, has offered. I don't think that means they're going to restrain themselves from attacking your study, given its conclusion that in order to increase public health protection, we need more rather than less regulation. What's your sense of how they might attack the study? And even more important, um, what's your understanding of, of, of why the study is so likely to be durable and resilient in the face of, of, of those attacks? Well, I don't know, you know, I don't know if it would be resilient and for sure they're attacking me uh, very ferociously as they have attacked my colleagues. But let me let me step back for a moment. And I think it's important to clarify a few, you know, a few important um, facts. I mean, clearly, I think you're exactly right that this is a general tactic. The general tactic ta tactic is that all of the benefit, the public health benefit of EPA regulatory policy have been very well documented based on rigorous science. Rigorous science relied on data. And um, in the last 25 years, starting with the Harbor Six City studies of from my own school, from Doug Dogger and colleagues. There are six city studies, was I would call it probably one of the most landmark studies. They used data on six cities to show the heart pollution increased risk of that. And then there was American Cancer Society study led by Arden Pope. And there have been thousands of epidemiological studies uh, that all point around and all are consistent and tell you exactly the same thing, that ambient exposure to pollution affect health. And they were the, the backbone under which there was the public health benefit and why we had this role. 
So the general tactic has, you know, regardless of any of the work I've done, but the general tactic is pretty clear. If we refuse and attack and discredit the science, we will, you know, we will now be able to make any change that we want without being able to re- rely on, on data. And the way they have been attacking the science, because they couldn't attack the scientific credibility of hundreds of thousands of scientists around the world, was attacking by the fact that you're doing epidemiological study, they use health information from individuals, and clearly we have to, you know, if we do any cohort study, we follow the health experience of people over time, we ask them to, to sign a consent form, and we make the profit, you know, we make the process, promise to the individual that we're not going to release this information publicly. So their attack is all of these, these, these studies, they have all been saying the same thing, from which we have relied all the science, all rely on data that they consider secret, and so we know, you know, the general public can access it, so we should not believe it. We should discredit. And clearly to me, that's, that makes absolutely no, no sense. It's, you know, now, you know, it's basically you can have the same argument for any type of science. And so that means that in anything regarding policy should not rely on science. And it seems to me that this is a silly argument. So these studies are extremely valuable, should continue, and they must continue because what is important about these studies and the reason why they rely on also personal data is that they can be carefully designed to measure things about your health that are really important to measure. For example, the thickness of your artery, how your your genes respond to environmental exposures. So this study must continue for the good of science. Now, what I have done, I tried to approach the problem from a different viewpoint. And instead of uh, carefully design a study where I roll a group of people and I measure personal health about them, I basically went to Center of Medicaid and Medicare Services and I thought, well, the government collect claims data for everyone is, a, is in the Medicare. These data are less, I would say, rich than I can have a single person coming to the doctor office and measure everything about them because these, these are claims or bills, right? Mm-hmm. But still, they, they have all of these variables and the good news is that they are on everybody. Mm-hmm. And so the, the studies that we're publishing in the past few years by especially you know, the, uh, the study that we published in the New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA last year relied on what I called public available data, not, not in the sense that everyone can go on a website and download the data, but in the sense that everyone, every scientist or non-scientist can buy these claims data and can do the analysis in the same way that, that, that we have. But the most important thing, so there are two, two take-home messages. One is... Ultimately, the interesting thing is that the, the study that we have conducted, they rely on, on entirely 100% data that has been produced by the government, which I thought was actually was a very cost-effective way because the government's already spent mm-hmm. the money to collect the data, and so I'm just going to leverage that. But guess what? We found the results that were perfectly consistent with all of the rest of the literature that Pruitt is considering secret science. Mm-hmm. So I didn't report any 
different estimate that was you know inconsistent to what what was be found before. And so you want to have something. So so basically, what you say you just told us is all of the studies that um, Pruitt and his coalition tendentiously referred to as so-called secret science are consistent Absolutely. with your work, which meets the definition of so-called open science. Correct. Um, so the entire exercise in making this distinction, which is a contrived one designed to produce a certain result um, that is a deregulatory result, um, this distinction is, 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 was basically dissolved by, by, your, by your work. Um, in tracking you down and preparing for this, for this discussion, I uh, tapped my own network of folks that I had worked with over the years, particularly in the Environmental Protection Agency, um, starting, of course, with Gina McCarthy, the former administrator, um, who is now part of your larger team uh, <laughs> at, the, at the public health school. But I talked to a, a number of other people as well who were specialists in the area, and I came away with an appreciation that among your peers, you are something of a celebrity um, and yeah. uh, certainly have a, a very, very large fan club. So what I'd like to, you to do is just make sure everybody knows what your background is, what your, what your training has been, and... and um, how you found yourself on on this, from my perspective, very enlightening path. Um, well, uh, you you made me blush a little bit. I, right. I don't if, feel. If, if I you don't want, feel... if we want, we'll, uh, we'll edit out, we'll edit out the celebrity <laughs> business. Right, but uh, but I but but um, um, I think your your resume says, among other things, that you are a biostatistician. Yes. Um, and you've certainly made the discipline sound awfully compelling this morning. So um, yes. uh, hearing a little bit about your Thank background you. would be great. So I train, I have, I have a PhD in statistics, and then I, was, I started my career at Johns Hopkins University in the Department of Biostatistics. I was, I was hired by Jonathan Samet, who is now the dean at the School of Public Health at Colorado, and Scott Ziegler, who at that time was a chair of biostatistics at Johns Hopkins University. And I think that my background has always been in the most rigorous training of um, the theory and the analysis of data to, to um, address important questions in society. And what has been happening to me and my colleagues that are we call it now statistician or computer scientist or biostatistician, and now we like to call ourselves data scientists, is that I do think that um, we are now having this enormous opportunity to solve a big, important problem in the world by relying on rigorous analysis of data. And so my training has been really to pretty nerdy math and statistics. Um, and uh, with, when I started my postdoctoral fellow at Hopkins, I realized that in the context of estimating health effects of pollution, because the data, first of all, the health effects of pollution, even though affect everybody, the signal is small, um, you know, fortunately. And so, you know, analyzing this data would require and a higher level of sophistication in trying to 
partial out, what I call it, the signal from the noise in the data. And so I became very passionate about using my skill in statistical theory and data analysis and computation and general data science, and then apply this skill to solve this is such an important problem in, in environmental policy. Of course, when I started this, I had no idea that I was getting what I was getting into it. For me, that was just like one data set. Mm-hmm. So, but but that's why, you know, I think now we're also Harvard is positioning themselves with the data science initiative is that the idea that students and faculty and scientists, they have enormous amount of skill in extracting knowledge for data are now in a much more powerful position than they used to be because we have sensor, we have cell phone, we have satellite, and now we have all of this massive amount of te- technology that can solve important questions with data. It sounds like you're uh, pursuing an, an integrated mission, the mission of, of using data in, in a way that really does justice to the tool or tools and to the purpose which it's, it should serve. And the other mission, of course, is that purpose being improving, improving people's lives through improving public health. Um, well, thank you very, very much for, for joining us. I, I think that people uh, listening to this podcast will be grateful, um, not only for the work that you do, but for spending a little time uh, helping as many people as possible understand it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.